Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at MindBuddyGreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. My wife, Colleen, and I prioritize eating healthy, but between running our own business and spending time with our daughter, Ellie, we don't always have time to go grocery shopping and cook all the delicious plant-based meals we want to eat, which is why I'm so glad that Hungry Root is sponsoring today's podcast episode. Founded in 2015, Hungry Root delivers healthy convenience to your door, making it easy to eat healthy when you're super busy. Meals only take 10 minutes to prepare, and each one includes fresh-cut vegetables, mouth-watering sauces, and there's so much variety. They have 75 different dishes, so we definitely never get bored. Even better, all of their meals are low in sodium and preservatives and sugar-free. The only issue? We're guilty of hitting their almond chickpea cookie dough just a little too hard. Hey, what do you expect? It's delicious. Sound good to you? Use code MBG to get $25 off your first two deliveries for a total savings of $50. Hey, everybody. I just want to take a quick moment to thank you all for listening to the podcast and to say that we want to listen to you. So if you have any questions, any dream guests, we are all ears. I would love to hear from you. So ask me anything and stay tuned for the answers or your dream guests on this very podcast. Send your questions to podcast at mindbodygreen.com. That's podcast at mindbodygreen.com. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thanks so much. And let's go back to the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Taz Bhatia, a board-certified integrative medicine physician and wellness expert specializing in women's health, hormone balancing, weight loss, nutrition, and family wellness. Her most recent book, Superwoman Rx, aims to help women who might be experiencing low energy, unwanted weight gain or loss, and hormone-related symptoms return to their healthiest lives in three weeks based on their power archetype. In the book, her personal medical practice, and her articles on MBG, Dr. Taz brilliantly weaves ancient practices like traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, and energy work together with functional and integrative medicine. When considered together, these can illuminate issues in a new way, leading to effective solutions that often elude conventional medicine approaches. Dr. Taz, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Colleen. It's so good to see you. Well, thanks for coming in today. And as you know, one of the most popular topics with the Mind Body Green audience is around women's health. It seems like we're in a bit of a crisis in women's health, and it could just be that we're talking about it more, but lots of concerns within our audience around hormone health. And your recent book, Superwoman Rx, helps us kind of navigate that puzzle. Can you walk us through the archetypes in your book and how that helps you think about women today? Sure. You know, I wrote the Superwoman Rx because I was seeing exactly this. Many women 
you know, that I meet over and over again in the exam room, just really battling a number of different health issues. Some of them caused by their lifestyle. Some of them honestly caused by them not having the time or the energy or even a roadmap to understand themselves. And there's such a need for this. You know, there's so much information out there and it's really hard to sit there and filter out which information is appropriate for you. So my hope was that this would be the beginning of a journey for every woman out there. So each of these types are women I've met through the practice. Each of these types have been created by combining multiple systems of medicine together and merging all the data we have from Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, nutrition, energy medicine, all of that, and of course, conventional medicine and lab work. And as I did this, you know, year after year, I'm going on a decade, over 12,000 women, certain types did emerge. While everyone has their own story, there are five key types. And the first one I call the gypsy girl, and this type might be the Vada in Ayurvedic medicine or the person with kidney meridian deficiency in Chinese medicine or somebody with adrenal fatigue and cortisol issues when we look at lab work. But essentially, this is the type that's the creative. You know, they're disconnected a little bit. They're in a different space. You have to kind of grab them and pull them back to you. And that disconnection leads to a whole different set of health issues. So that was their challenge. Then there is uh, the boss lady. I meet tons of boss ladies. I think there are lots of boss ladies out there nowadays, which is fantastic. But again, we're women and in the struggle to be leaders and directors and all the other things we want to do, that energy does manifest as disease and different symptoms over time. So the boss lady is the Pitta in Ayurveda or the person with a lot of kind of kidney spleen issues in uh, Chinese medicine, you know, so, so, and they have a lot of digestive issues when you look at their health and they have a lot of inflammation, you know, so for those folks, you know, they needed their own plan. They didn't need to be on the same plan as everybody else. So that was, you know, that group of women. And then there are the women like me that we're a little bit of both, you know, we call, I called it the savvy chick, you know, not because I have a big ego, but it's just, you have to, I feel like I do this every day. I create, but then I implement, I create, but then I lead, you know, I'm dreaming, but then I'm also having to be very much in this world with two feet forward and, you know, directing and leading and inspiring my team. So the savvy chick has elements of both and with elements of both, there's sometimes the health consequences of both, just as there are the gifts of both. So that's the savvy chick. Then we have what I always equate to the female version of my husband, which is the earth mama, who's just nurturing and giving and worried about everybody else all the time and, you know, likes to be the center of a home or a community and people just gravitate to that person and love that person so much. And that person is amazing and we need those people. But what we find both in men and women, quite honestly, is that all that giving and all that nurturing also takes a toll and there are health issues that come with that. And they have a challenge of really trying to understand and learn their boundaries and kind of what they need to be doing to take care of themselves. Or we've seen over and over again with those women, it's a lot of insulin issues, a lot of issues with Mm -hmm. weight, a lot of issues with depression, a lot of issues with cardiovascular disease. And then last but not least is sort of the mesh of all of them is a nightingale and that person is also very selfless and giving also has an issue with boundaries is part creative can lead at different times but they've started to bottom out you know they've really gotten to where their health is maybe on a little bit of a decline what they've done over the years and over time has truly started to affect them and they really need a complete kind of immune reset or reboost. So those were the five key types. And those are the types that I keep seeing in practice every day. And is there any universal diet advice across those five types of how we should eat? 
It's such a great question. So when, when we set out to write this book, I remember the publisher being, you want five types and five diet plans and five regiments. I'm like, yes, I do. And they're like, is there some, they asked me the same question. Is there some overarching type that we could work from before you start doing a book with five different <laughs> meal plans and five different beauty regimens and everything in there? And yes, there is. I mean, I think a safe bet for most people is the anti-inflammatories, you know, Mediterranean, semi-vegetarian diet. I think that's a, that's a great general rule, right? We know now we need healthy fat. We know that we, you know, need to minimize our intake of sugars. We know we need more protein. We know we should be low in grains relatively and gluten-free and dairy-free and all these things are low gluten and low dairy. Not everyone needs to be gluten-free and dairy-free. So those are great generalizations. We know the importance of plant based foods and how those should be the biggest serving on your plate. Yes, that's a big general umbrella that everybody can gravitate towards. But what gets missed under that big general umbrella is not targeting the diet recommendations to your type, you know. So some people do great as vegetarians. Some people do horribly. You know, some people can eat meat. Some people shouldn't be touching meat. You know, some people need some complex carbs and need some grains, whereas others don't. So a lot of it is, you know, the equivalent of what Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine were doing with typing and matching diets to types. Like they, you know, they match diets by meridian. They match diets by dosha. You know, conventional medicine is not even close to getting there where we can match a diet to genetics. You know, there's some of that testing out there, which is fascinating, and we do it in the practice. I had a lady yesterday who we really thought the ketogenic diet was going to be the right one for, and she was going to lose weight on that. Her genetic test came back, and she needs carbs. She needs complex carbs, you know? So when it, when it comes to testing, what are the tests that you recommend that everyone gets from a blood work standpoint? You know, right now there's not... There's the genetic testing for weight loss, which is fascinating, but it needs more work, quite honestly. It needs a lot more data and a lot more traction before we can use it as one tool that yep. that's going to determine everybody's diet. So we talk about this in the book as well, but the testing all women should get, they should always test all their hormone levels, especially insulin, C-peptide, leptin levels. They should test their thyroid in complete, you know, completely, including TSH, free T4, T3, all of that. They should look at cortisol levels. They should look at their estrogen progesterone levels and testosterone. We should look at key nutritional deficiencies because they tell us a lot. It's more more a story than you know, it's not just about that nutrient being deficient, but what's underneath that. So for example, when vitamin D is chronically low, I know a person has fat malabsorption. When iron is chronically low, we know that that's going to connect back to the thyroid. So D, iron, the B vitamins, I think are critical for women. They are in almost every pathway when it comes to our hormones and we don't ever talk about them. Magnesium is another one. So I these, love magnesium. these are the things that we should be testing and tracking along with inflammation markers that can give us a good deal of information about where we are with our health. You mentioned that healthy fats are a staple of a good diet. What are some of your favorite sources of healthy fats? You know, I love fat and I'm someone who needs a lot of fat. So olive oil is one of my favorites. Coconut oil I will use. I'll use ghee. I just have to use it in moderation to balance the weight component of it. The, uh, Can you explain a little more about that? Absolutely. So both coconut oil and ghee are saturated fats. Saturated fats are needed by the body, but when you do them in excess, you know, when you do them more than really what the body needs, you will gain weight and you will drive your lipid markers up. So it's really important to find what that balance is. For me, it's about a couple teaspoons a day. I don't need more than that. Uh, you know, it's interesting because my heritage is Indian and from the, you know, my parents are from the Northern Indian and so is my husband actually. And they would dump like tablespoons of ghee into their, into their food 
food and they had the highest rates of cardiovascular disease and things like that, you know, compared to the rest of India. So, you know, we still know that excess of saturated fats is a problem, but it's a problem because of the excess. It's not that saturated fat is bad. It's also a problem because of the digestive component. If we don't have the enzymes to break down fat, then yes, you're going to drive your lipid markers up and gain weight and the fat's not going to go where it needs to go, which is to your hormones or to your brain or to your skin or things like that. So nut butters are a staple in our family as well. Sure. Eggs have a ton of healthy fat and choline as well, which is really important for, you know, both brain health and skin health and everything else in between. So we just vary it. And, you know, we use a lot of seeds as well. We use a lot of chia seeds and flax seeds and do different things with those within our recipes. So those are some of the ones that we use the most commonly. And you talked a little bit about gluten and that some women may be able to tolerate gluten. Let's talk more about that. Absolutely. So again, you know, I've run the gamut with gluten. I am gluten-free. It's a big part of my story and a big part of why all my hormones crashed and everything that happened with me. But not every single person necessarily has to be gluten-free. There's, it's not a, it's not everyone's story. It is an inflammatory protein, so you should be lowering your ingestion of gluten. I really feel like a lot of what I'm seeing nowadays has more to do with the quality of the grain that we're using and not necessarily that it's a story about gluten because you can have, and I've noticed this too, when I eat a very high quality organic wheat bread, I don't have the issues that I have when I eat maybe pasta at the local restaurant downstairs, you know? So a lot of it is about what's happened to wheat, what's happened to our grains, you know, what's happened in the processing piece of things. And I think that's why so many people today are having to be grain-free or gluten-free because it doesn't look like what it used to look like 50 years ago. So if it's not your core, again, every woman, every person, every child even, we should be trying to find our core issues. Otherwise, life gets very difficult to follow. It's hard to follow diets. It's hard to go to parties. It's hard to do different things. So what I want for every patient I see and for every person that reads the book is you should be able to walk out and rattle off to me the three things you always need to do to take care of your health. I can tell you mine. I always have to be gluten-free. I always have to be on iron and I absolutely have to watch carbs and sugar. Those are my three, you know, and if I do that, my numbers always look amazing, you know, and I feel amazing. The minute I veer off course, one of those three things, then I have an issue. Now, somebody else, you know, I can think of so many other people in the practice and friends and even family members, like they need to be dairy free. You know, they need to actually be on a probiotic every day. They need to take a digestive enzyme every day. You Should know. everyone be taking a probiotic every day? You know, again, you want to target probiotics are helpful for sure, but your boss ladies need probiotics probably more than anybody else because they are going to be prone to digestive failure. So again, some of the, you know, there's so much information. There's so many products. There's so many supplements. There's so many diets. What are the three or four things that you need to be doing every single day? That's what everybody should try to get to because then it's no longer overwhelming. It's just a prescription for health, you know, and where conventional medicine will write multiple prescriptions on a prescription pad and that seems easy, right? It seems convenient and easy to do. We in our field should be doing the exact same thing and not overloading people with all of this stuff, but giving them very clear, concise detail. This is what you need to do. This is what your recipe is. This is what your formula is. Do these three to five things and you will be, you know, relatively okay. So, and what are the things that we need to do to take care of our thyroid health? Thyroid is a complex story as well. It's a combination of diet, 
stress management, genetics, all of those play together in in the thyroid equation. Many people don't realize how powerful nutrition and diet are when it comes to the thyroid. I've sat with so many patients who we've played with their medications. Today we're at Synthroid. Tomorrow we're on Naturethroid. The next day we're on a compounded T3, T4, and we get nowhere. And the reason we get nowhere is because they can't make the diet changes that need to happen and they can't heal the gut because they can't make the diet changes and they can't get those nutrient levels that are critical for the thyroid where they need to be. And by diet changes, again, it's an individual story, but most everyone that has a thyroid condition needs to be gluten-free. And the reason for that is that gluten, we know, is first of all very difficult to digest, but it's processed with bromide. And we know that bromide has displaced iodine from all the way back to in utero. So typically the people with a lot of thyroid conditions are very iodine depleted, which is one nutrient that's needed for good thyroid function. Another one is iron. The minute we see iron levels drop, then the thyroid has a bigger issue. Selenium and zinc are additional nutrients that are needed for good thyroid function. So you need the nutrient part to be where it's supposed to be, but the nutrients can't even get there, even through supplementation, if you can't get the diet where it needs to be. Otherwise, you literally leak everything, and it's not absorbing, and you play medication roulette, you know, like, let's try this, well, let's try this, well, let's do this, and let's do this. So everyone has to find their diet story. They then can deal with the nutrient component of it, and then can deal with the right medication dosage. And a lot of times when you get those things right, you don't need as much medication. The amount of medication you need is minimal. And some people have been able to come off medication completely, but that takes a really long time. So metabolism is something else that we hear a lot from our audience, um, usually going too slow and, and, and not the, yeah. the reverse of, of too fast. How do I slow it down? What advice would you offer to someone who's struggling with metabolism? Metabolism is, again, has to be looked at holistically, right? You have to look at all the different factors affecting metabolism. But this is what we are learning is the number one trip for metabolism. It's not, no one can any longer say it's my age. That's the first thing I hear. (laughs) I'm just getting older. I guess this is what happens. Yes, but understand why it happens. It happens because digestive health takes a hit over time. Chronic stress, chronic poor diet, you know, chronic, you know, sort of flooding the gut with toxins and things like that. We can't produce the enzymes we once were able to produce. We start going getting very low in hydrochloric acid. And then the liver gets backed up as well for multiple reasons. Either stress, like Chinese medicine says, you hold all your emotions in the liver, or it's the environment with different toxins and pollutants that the liver then has to filter, or it's a bad gut that the liver's having to compensate for. But between the gut and the liver, at some point in time, the two take a hit. And when they take a hit, that's when your metabolism changes. And it's almost like, I've experienced this personally, it's the most eerie thing. You could be kind of humming along life, dealing with whatever you're having to deal with, and you can wake up the next day and notice a change or a shift. And that shift is little things, like you suddenly are gaining weight around your abdomen, whereas that was never an issue before. You have back fat, and that was never an issue before. I went through a super stressful period, um, I think in the business a few years ago, and was really worried about a couple of things. And uh, it was just one stress compounded on top of the other. And literally three months after that, I noticed I had a belly. And I had never, I don't have a belly. I have a lot of other issues, you know, <laughs> but not a belly. And so it was just like that, this wake up moment that, oh my gosh, what I'm telling my patients is happening to me, you know? Right. So again, metabolism, there is a switch. 
it does flip just like a circuit trips, but that tripping and that flipping is usually due to a combination of factors that can be corrected and that can be improved. And it's 80% food and gut and 20% exercise. Wow. So if if we were focusing on the top three, I I like how you're simplifying how to think about health. It it would be food related, food related and food related. It's food over and over again. You can do all the extreme workouts you want in the world. Sometimes those are actually more harmful because they're causing a cortisol. They're asking a lot of your body if your body's already stressed. But to truly get out, you know, to truly flip that metabolic switch that we're talking about, it's food and gut. I mean, it's really rooted in there. And of course, your hormones have to be balanced as well, too. I mean, if you're, if you're doing all the food and gut things and your thyroid's off or, you know, you have really high estrogen levels, then it's hard to make progress. But that's where the energy needs to be, you know, more so. And then once you get that right, yes, you know, start challenging the body as well. But you can't get anywhere until you get those first two things squared away. And I think we're finally at a place where we're debunking the cardio, cardio, cardio myth. Um, But just as diet is personalized to a unique makeup of a person, I'm assuming exercise should take that as well. And how do people find what is the right level of exercise they should be doing? Yeah, it's really tough. I feel bad for people out there. Again, there is just the beginnings of the genetic testing that can help with that. We use it in practice where it shows very clearly that this person will respond to cardio and this one will respond to weights and things like that. I think you, you know, if you're not doing that type of testing, you have to be intuitive. You know, when you do a workout and you're having a really tough time recovering from that workout, that's a sign. You know, if you feel energized by workout, that's different. If you're running a high stress life and you're doing a high stress workout, that's a disconnect. You're just pumping adrenaline all the time and you're on an adrenaline high and you will crash at some point. So I think it's sort of being very intuitive, you know, with your body, understanding what it needs, what it responds to. You know, again, I can go back. I have so many stories. I always go back to mine. I mean, I was doing a lot of weights because I thought that's what I needed to change sort of my shape or things like that. I don't like them. I don't enjoy them particularly, but I do them. And I recently got back into yoga. You know, I'm a certified yoga instructor, but have just lost it with the whole last decade of everything that's <laughs> happened. So got back into yoga and, um, like I forgot how much I loved it and right. I see myself responding to it again, you know? So you know, there are these internal cues of what your body is telling you that we all ignore because we're more mentally driven and it's like, I got to do this. This is a goal. This is, you know, yes. what am I, you know, what, what was my time? You know, how fast can I go and all this other stuff? And that's not, the research isn't there quite honestly anymore. What it's really saying is that constant movement throughout the day is the reason the Europeans and people in other countries are thinner because they're moving all the time, no matter what they're eating, you know? So it's that, Five, ten minute, there was a study out a couple weeks ago, just five, ten minutes here and there is actually more effective than those super intense workouts, you know? So again, I think you have to respond to what your body's telling you. I think that's why understanding your type is important. Right. Like my earth mamas, they need cardio. They need to move. They naturally, they're kaffas. They naturally don't want to move, you know, so they need that push and that drive and they respond to cardio. Whereas a gypsy, you know, a gypsy girl who's already disconnected doesn't need more adrenaline pumping out of her system. You know, she needs a way to ground herself and use maybe things like yoga or even like swimming or something like that, where she's forced to get out of her head and come back down into her body, you know? So those are some of the nuances and the advantage of understanding who you are and understanding what it is that your body needs, your mind needs for you to be the best version of yourself. So let's talk about hormone health. Yeah. For women in their 20s, what should they be thinking about as it relates to their hormone health? 
You know, there's an epidemic of hormone imbalances in their 20s, which women in their 20s are not paying attention to. So anyone out there who is in that age range, I wish I had done this in my 20s, you should be getting your hormones checked. I mean, look at your androgen levels, which is DHEA and testosterone, because that in turn is going to help someone make a diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. Look at insulin and blood sugar. Really pay attention to that. Don't take things like your thyroid, I mean, not your thyroid, but your period lightly, you know. Right. Many women think, oh, my peers are irregular. That's normal. Or it's always been that way. You know, I don't need to worry about it. That's the biggest fallacy. You know, you right. should, healthy women have a period every month. They go through that natural cycling. Now, if you're on birth control, it's hard to know what's happening. If you have an IUD, sometimes it's also hard to know what's happening. What that, do you recommend for those women? I think that's why they need to get their levels checked. They need to understand what's happening in the underneath of all of that because then they hit 30 or 32 or 33 and they're ready to have children or start a family or whatever it is and there's another shift and they're sort of taken aback that they didn't know all these years they were dealing with the sluggish thyroid or they were dealing with high androgen levels and all this stuff compounds on itself sure. you know so and again it can be fixed and I'm the classic version of that I crashed in my 20s and have felt better in my 30s and now better in my 40s than I did in my 20s so all of it can be fixed you know it's just it's just a journey that's sometimes unnecessary if you check it from the get-go. And on that journey, as women go from their 20s to 30s, is there anything that should change as it relates to their horm hormone health? Well, there are so many changes that happen. You do see changes in estrogen to progesterone ratios. You do see changes in thyroid numbers. You see changes in, you know, even insulin and metabolism numbers and things like that. But again, it's really important to know where somebody feels good because that change is relative to them, you know. And the more, going back to food and gut, the more you get your nutrition right through your 20s and you get digestive health right through your 20s, these transitional decade marks are are negligible. You sail through them. So a woman who's got like their 20s, who's really, you know, locked down, like if I had known I needed to be gluten-free in my 20s, I wouldn't have experienced some of the health issues I experienced in my early 30s, you know? Right. So again, like I think the more you understand about yourself and how to eat and how to take care of yourself, then you transition through the decades and it's not a major issue. And I see this too in my menopausal women, like the ones that know their nutrition, they've cleaned their gut, they, they've balanced things out over a long period of time menopause is a joke to them. They sail through, they don't have all the symptoms and they do really well. So we don't have to have hot flashes? No, not at all. No. I mean, I think there's a way to prevent all of that, you know, and it's the health of the liver and it's the health of the gut. I think that's where it begins. So something that we're talking more about as a mind-body green community is perimenopause. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So perimenopause is a big, vague sort of <laughs> term because it's everyone from like 33, 34, all the way to like 55, you know, until you truly go into menopause. So perimenopause is that phase uh, of a woman's life where her hormones just fluctuate. Isn't and that like every phase of a woman's it's life? every phase of a woman's life. But what they mean by the term perimenopause is like the numbers are fluctuating towards more of a menopausal profile. Okay. So you may start to become low in estrogen or low in progesterone or may start to have more irregular periods or start to notice some of those symptoms like hot flashes or night sweats, but they're not consistent. They're just every now and then. That's perimenopause. But the majority of women today are, are in perimenopause. The question is, you know, what are your hormone levels doing and where are they and where do they need to be? So if you're in a perimenopausal state, what would you recommend? Is it understanding what's working for you and what diet needs to shift? Like, what would you recommend? Yeah, I think, you know, again, I, I don't like the label of perimenopause because I think it's just 
too vague and too nondescript. I right. think that all women need to understand where they are, you know, what the right hormone level is for them. You know, like take thyroid, for example, like you may feel great at a TSH of one, but I can have another patient who tells me that's hypothyroid for them. They feel great at a TSH of 0.3. So I think everyone needs to understand where they are and then attempt to get to that place where they feel good, where their hormone levels are at, a, at places where they feel good and balanced. And then perimenopause is kind of, again, an, another non-issue. You know, you don't experience those fluctuations as much. I think you do need to be intuitive about when you're shifting, because one of the things we talk about in the book a lot is how we change, right? right. And I had these five ar- archetypes, but in some ways we're all those women, right, at different sure. phases of our life. So as we shift and change, the body may need different things. But again, it's being intuitive and being aware of the fact that a shift has happened. You just had a child. You know, you might need different things today yes. than you needed before you were a mother, you know, or, you know, so these are some of the changes that I think that as women, we have a responsibility. I always say it's our responsibility. We always think our responsibility is to everybody else, but I think it's our responsibility to understand what's happening with us and understand our bodies fully and our chemistry fully. Then we don't need these labels of perimenopause. We're simply shifting roles and positions and giving the body what it needs to sustain each of these roles and positions. I like how you're thinking about it, not as a, as a fixed state, but that these are archetypes that are in motion and fluid parts of all the time. I mean, we're really all five of those women at any given moment, you know, I mean, or at any given point of our journey, you know, of our life, but at certain moments of certain pieces of us need to be stronger than others, which means that we are going to have different needs. You know, when I was running my team and building my business and the person who, had to bark orders, so to speak. (laughs) I was definitely all boss lady, right? Right. But now that I don't have to do as much of that and I can dream a little bit more, I'm more of the gypsy, you know? So we flex between that, you know, maybe the first year of my children's life, I was the earth mama, you know, because I wanted to be the one caring and nurturing for everybody, you know? So we all shift, you know, and, and understanding that we're all of this, but we have to understand where we are and what the body needs was really the purpose of writing the book. So motherhood can be such a transformative event for so many people. I mean, I know I, I feel differently across all, all levels after um, giving birth and being a mom. What is that shift that happens within a woman? And you know, you talk um, about how that journey of, of a mother and a child um, is so connected from a health standpoint. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I do. I think that having children and being a mother is a basic primal call that the majority of women have, you know, somehow we prep for it. Somehow we're wired for it. We want it. We desire it. You know, it's, it's something deep within us. And when it actually happens, your entire worldview and perspective changes and it changes for the good. And then where it changes for the bad is that you become less important. And what we forget, which older systems of medicine, again, Chinese medicine, you never separated a mother's health from a child's health. You always treated them as a unit. And that's how I originally founded the practice is that you have to treat the two together because the health of one directly impacts the health of the other. And you're not just talking about in utero. You're talking for all the way through, all the way through. And it's fascinating. There's genetic studies now that support that. They support how, you know, the two are so tied together. It's there. You guys are tied together from an energy standpoint, you're tied together from a chemistry standpoint. And even in practice, you know, because I originally started the practice that way, now we've sort of expanded to everything. But but originally, like you would see a mom come in with 
conditions. And then you would see even a son or a daughter of that mom come in with the exact same conditions. It was like a blueprint, like the chemistry was the same, you know? So there's a very, very big pull between a mother and a child and between mothers and daughters. And I think we have to acknowledge it and recognize it, which it comes back again to us that we're, our children can only be as healthy as, as we are, you know, mm-hmm. and we can only be as healthy as they are. So you have to treat them both. And that's where there's a kind of a united family and a healthy family when all pieces of that are healthy. And how do the fathers fit into all this? Fathers are critical. I mean, I'm not trying to by any means dismiss dads, you know, but they're critical. It's just when we look at the DNA piece and you look at the energetic piece, there's that mom-child thing that's stronger and it's always been stronger and that's just the way it is. But fathers are critical because they provide a stability, they provide a sense of self-esteem, and they provide a structure that sometimes we as women don't necessarily have. And that's just right. being very honest. We have circular brains. We move from point A to point B and C and D and come back and that works to our advantage, but it also works to our disadvantage. A father with their linear thinking and kind of that sort of sense of we're going to move from here to here to here, you know, that's needed too. You know, it's all a balance of yin and yang and you want both, you know, in a family structure. So I think they're just as critical and important. And yes, you inherit diseases from your father and yes, you can inherit chemistry from your father for sure, you know, but, um, but there's just so much when we look at the two components, you know, we know when I study everything and put everything together, that mom-child connection, if that is broken, that break is more devastating than sometimes the father-child break. So that's just something that we as a society honestly have to be aware of. So moving on from motherhood to mental health, something that we're focused on a lot right now and talking about in a much bigger way, which I think is, is so important to open up the conversation what can women do to improve their mental health as it as it relates to diet and exercise? So there is so much in the world of mental health, and I'm sure you're as troubled as I am with all the mental health stuff that we're dealing with. I mean, it's anxiety, depression, OCD, bipolar, and we can extrapolate that to children as well. I feel like pediatrics is becoming all a specialty of, you know, neurocognitive issues and, yeah. and mental health issues. So, so, some, some of that shift is societal. Some of it is the pressures on women today. You know, some of it is we do have to be everywhere. We're no longer necessarily allowing time to nurture our souls and nurture our spirit and nurture our families the way we may want to. So some of it is that, but then some of it is a shift in our food and our sort of nutritional deficiencies and what's happened with epigenetics over time. And it's important to understand that. So there's a gut brain connection. We already know that. And so not to sound like a, you know, sort of like a a tape recorder over and over again, but we know that you have to get digestive health, right? You know, there's so many people that are a shadow version of themselves when they're eating in a way that's not compatible to what they need. So many people with mental health issues need more fat. They need to be gluten-free because they have neuroinflammation. So anytime you have an inflammatory disorder, you want to pull away from inflammatory proteins like gluten or dairy or things like that. We know that probiotics make a difference because, and we're not there yet, but we know we're going to get to the point where if you have anxiety, this is the probiotic strain for you. And if you have depression, this is the probiotic strain for you. How far away are we from that? Oh, probably five more years, I think. Five to ten years. That's already where like we can match 
you know, probiotics to certain conditions, you know, so I think it'll just, that information continues to explode. So hopefully, you know, at least within a decade, we should have more information. So we know gut bacteria matters, you know, we know leaky gut matters, fat matters. I don't know how many children and women I've diagnosed with apraxia, anxiety, depression, you know, developmental delay, all these different things because they're leaking fat. And if we're not absorbing fat, then you don't have the building blocks you need to manage a healthy brain. So gut and nutrition probably are critical. Women have the added component of hormones because hormones play very predominantly into their mental health. You know, anytime we're low in progesterone, don't have a thyroid, that's where it needs to be, have super high or super low estrogen levels, you know, all of that's going to impact our mental health. So those are the things that need to be kind of corralled before we think right away medication. Now, medication has a role if somebody's in a dark, dark place because it takes time to shift all this other stuff. But the intention with medication should not be you're going to be on this for the rest of your life, never get off of it, which is what I hear all the time. It should be let's fix your chemistry and let's see if after that how you feel, you know, and then we kind of move from there. So, so much of what we've talked about is gut health being, you know, a key to mm-hmm. overall health and, and probiotics, potentially prebiotics playing a role in that. One of the things that seems very confusing to me is there's so many different strands of bacteria. How yeah. do you find the probiotic that's right for you? I think it's a really confusing area to navigate. Yeah, I think it's confusing because there's honestly not a lot of information yet, not a lot of helpful information yet. There's a lot going on in research, which is thrilling, but not a lot of it's translating over into clinical use. And so we go by general guidelines. You know, the, if you have no clue what to look for when you're getting a probiotic, we usually, your best bet is to pick something up with four or five different strains. It should have lactobacillus in it, if a couple of strains of lactobacillus, and it should have a couple of strains of bifidobacteria in it, because they seem to be the two biggest deficiencies kind of in our microbiome that I'm seeing over and over again. You want to buy a high quality one. You want to buy something with at least 50 billion units in it, if not higher. And you want to be buy something that the manufacturer has tested yep. and is shelf stable, because many probiotics degrade down to a point by the time you actually pick that bottle up and and take it with you. So you want to make sure the manufacturer has made sure they're shelf stable or, you know, the refrigerated ones, that's their workaround on that situation too, to keep things more stable. So that's the reason it's so challenging. Now, we do know like in conditions like Crohn's or inflammatory bowel disease, we do know certain probiotics work better. For people that have candida, they seem to need a lot of bifidobacteria. They really need to be focused there. So these are some of the patterns that we're seeing that are helpful with probiotic supplementation. If you have bacterial overgrowth, then you get more into probiotics aren't going to be super helpful. They're probably going to hurt your stomach or make you worse unless, because we don't have that ability to exactly match unless you do testing, but that's where a prebiotic might be more helpful. You know, anything from inulin to chick- chicory root and those type of things or apple pectin. So, so that's some of the navigating that has to be done in that world of gut health. And are there any herbs, you know, that you think are staples to a healthy life that you recommend for a majority of your patients or women that you see? I love herbs. There's so <laughs> many you know, there's so many. Talk about confusing to navigate. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So for women, I think uh, a couple of herbs that don't get enough airtime are amla. Which Let's give them some PR is, right Exactly. Now. I think amla is amazing. Talk I, to me more about amla. So amla is Indian gooseberry, and okay. it actually has one of the highest levels of antioxidants compared to any other fruit 
that's out there. Um, it was used as a staple in Ayurvedic medicine for everything from energy to hair loss to skin health, all these other great things. I know of it to my mom, and I don't know if she's <laughs> listening, but she would she would take amla, dried amla from the Indian store, soak it, and use it in her scalp to keep her hair nice and black, you know? And I remember like trying to play with it when I was in residency, and all I did was got it all over the ceiling, <laughs> so I was done. <laughs> the original hair, skin, and nails. Exactly. So I was completely done. So, but, you know, fast forward all these years and I'm doing all this research on different things and looking at for solutions. And it's really, it's really a great, great herb. It's an invigorating herb. Shethbury is another great Ayurvedic herb that I think all women having children or postpartum should be looking into. It really helps to kind of regenerate the hormone system, help with energy, help with the, the kind of the pain of uh, delivery and all that other stuff. So that's another great one. Uh, ashwagandha is one of my favorites. Still is, has been. That's tried and true. That's a great one for cortisol balancing and trying to keep adrenal adrenal sort of supported in a non-hormonal way. And do you think ashwagandha is okay during pregnancy? Ashwagandha is not indicated in pregnancy. Yeah. I think the concern there, it's too stimulating and we don't Got know. It. And again, a lot of what we say is not allowed in pregnancy is because we don't have the research to back it up. You know, right. some things may be fine and people have been using it for thousands of years, but it's just the, the safety concern. Sure. There. Um, that's another one that I like. So those are probably my top three. Then I love some of the calming herbs like holy basil is yes. amazing. I love magnolia bark for sleep. That's a great one. Let's that's, talk a little more about sleep. Yeah. Let's talk about sleep. <laughs> no, no one seems to be having uh, the sleep life that they would, would like to get. What do you recommend for your patients who are looking to get more sleep? And they, you know, there's so many different reasons people aren't sleeping. I think first you need to understand the reason. If you're having trouble falling asleep, then my favorite is melatonin or magnesium. If you're having trouble staying asleep, then that's where I turn to magnolia bark or some of the other like adrenal calming hormones like holy basil or things like that. And there's so many different types of magnesium. Is mm-hmm. there one that you recommend over others? I like a glycinate or chelate. And okay. a chelated version will sometimes have two or three forms. Like it'll have a malate and a glycinate and something else with it. But that's my favorite because then you're treating the different places for magnesium to go. Citrate usually helps the gut. Malate usually helps the brain. Glycinate can help the hormones. So, you know, glycinate is probably my favorite when it comes to sleep. And then you malate may be my favorite from a neurocognitive standpoint, but I usually end up resorting back to the glycinate based on the type of patients we see in the practice. And if you're having trouble staying asleep, what does that mean? It's a couple of different reasons. First of all, that's a cortisol spike, and it's typically between 2 and 4 a.m. The most common reasons for that are for women, they've dropped their progesterone levels, and that's the reason they're doing that, because progesterone will suppress that cortisol spike. So you're either low in progesterone or you've had extreme stress and you're high in cortisol, and those cortisol levels are not settling down, so you're just sort of waking up throughout the night you know, for, for different reasons. Or you're just overstimulated. Blue light, not being grounded. Watch Toadland right before bed. Exactly. Don't watch the news before bed. Um, so, you know, you're just, you're just not having a good sleep hygiene where the nervous system can relax and understand it's time for sleep. And what is the protocol for you that is part of a good sleep hygiene? So for me, the critical things, you know, there, I'm, I don't really have a lot of sleep issues, quite honestly. I'm actually a pretty good sleeper. Nice. But when I travel or when I have a deadline or at certain points in my cycle, I can see a little bit of it flare. And I use a combination. I have it in something I call Sleep Savior. And I use magnesium, melatonin, and magnolia bark. They're all blended together. It's one of my absolute favorites. I'm out. 
in two seconds. <laughs> so I love that. There's another uh, product I like that um, actually pairs magnesium with valerian root, mm. and that also works very well too. So some of those are excellent. But magnesium has, by itself has been a savior for so many of my patients. And do you recommend that your patients leave the room air-conditioned or cooled at a certain temperature, or do you not get that prescriptive when it comes to sleep etiquette? I don't get that prescriptive because I often feel like that's not the route. Yeah. But we do want to, you do want a cooler room. You don't want an overly heated room, you know, when you're trying to sleep, get a good consistent sleep cycle. You do want to move your electronics out. Those are additional things that we know help. Switching gears from, from sleep, uh, back to diet, ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting. There are things we're talking about a lot right now. How do you think those diets do to support and nourish women? You know, all of those diets have a place, but here is just what I've observed. Yeah. Women don't do as well with a ketogenic diet. For some reason, they seem to have a harder time with it. And I think it's the hormonal component, again, that messes it up. We do have female patients that have had great results with it. One of my providers in my practice is a huge advocate of it. But just from a long-term health standpoint, I don't think women do quite as well. I think a version of it would work where you really do up your fats, but not to the point of the 75, 80 grams of fat per day. Uh, I do think it's critical on that ketogenic diet, again, to make sure you can digest that fat. So taking something with lipase and ox file with it so you can metabolize that fat effectively, I think is really important. And I think one of the things we can take away from the ketogenic diet is that, again, the emphasis that the excess carbohydrate load that many of us get is not does not work after a certain point in time. It doesn't work when that metabolism circuit, like I talk about, keeps tripping and is flipped. The intermittent fasting, now there's something there, but again, for women, we can't do it the way the men do it. You know, a lot of them are not eating for a 16 to 18 hour stretch. I even heard a 24 hour stretch at times. So that doesn't work for us because we're hormonal and our blood sugar is going to be influenced by whatever's happening with our hormones as well. Here's what we can do. We can, and again, older systems have adopted this forever. We can do a good 14 hour fast where we cut off eating, you know, by five o'clock or six o'clock in the evening and then don't eat again until maybe eight o'clock the next day or so. We can do that. It's about when I have dinner anyway. Exactly. And so we can clear everything out of your system. We can clear excess insulin, clear excess blood sugar out of your system. Now, the answer back to that is most people aren't home then and they want to be home with their families and eat dinner. So what I've heard from others that I've interviewed who are working a lot with uh, intermittent fasting and doing the research on it and all that other stuff, for those folks, like if they're going to eat that late dinner, then women once or twice a week can move that morning meal back to like noon or so. Don't start eating till then to clear excess insulin out of your system. But to do it over and over again, you're going to create blood sugar instability and that blood sugar instability is then going to wear and tear in your hormones and it's going to worsen things like adrenal fatigue and inflammation and all that other good stuff. The intermittent fasting is great for somebody who's in an elevated insulin state. You know what I mean? It's yep. great for someone whose blood sugars are always high, who has a lot of weight to lose, who has a lot of stores as well. It's great right. for them. Again, it's not going to be great for the gypsy girl, right? <laughs> she needs to eat a nice regular interval so her blood sugar kind of coast and is nice and even, and she may not have a lot of reserve on her to sustain the periods of time when she's not eating. So it's a lot of, again, understanding your body and your chemistry and if this is really the right thing for you rather than sort of jumping on that and moving forward. One thing to intermittent fasting too, though, I will say is it has demonstrated the excess, right? Like I think there's a lot of 
excess that we don't realize, you know. In fact, I remember joking with my husband, I'm going to start an initiative, like, just eat less. It'll solve, <laughs> it'll solve the weight problem. He's like, you can't do that. But it's more that all of us, myself included, don't realize that we don't really need as much anymore because we're not physical. We're not right. like farming and we're not doing our <laughs> hunting own for hunting our food and anymore. cleaning our homes like on our two feet and scrubbing and right. sewing. And we're just not physical. And so since we're not physical, our true needs are significantly lower. So what intermittent fasting will do is kind of rewire you as to what your food needs really are. Cause you'll realize like, Oh my gosh, I didn't need that nine o'clock snack. That was emotional, you know, right. and I didn't need that 2 PM snack. That was just boredom at work or whatever right. else, you know, so you'll start to realize some of those different things. Yeah. Understanding the psychology of it all is such yes. a crucial part of it. Yeah. So we've talked about the importance of nourishing your body, especially as it relates to women, particularly after motherhood um, and at all phases of, of, of life. Are there any tried and true self-care methods that you see really help your patients feel better? Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things is plan your food you know, meal prep, meal prep, think about food, plan food. Don't let it be a last minute decision. Don't let it sneak up on you. Right. You know? So take one day of the week, think through maybe the next three days of what you or your family will eat. I think that makes a huge difference in energy. I don't think people realize what a tremendous difference it can make to the entire day. I think the second is to create a mindfulness practice in every day. Cause that's something you can do no matter where you are. You can do it in the car. You can do it in the house. You can do it before you walk into work. You can do it before you walk into the nursery. It doesn't matter where you are. And that could be as simple as a 10 minute meditation, a 10 minute yoga sequence, you know, uh, a guided imagery tape that you listen to. But I think again, and I think it's a responsibility. I think as women, we have to rewire our brains and rewire our minds and, and having that to set forth with in the beginning of the day or the end of the day makes a huge difference. It just lowers cortisol it lowers stress levels. So I would say that's probably my second. And then my third is to really, you know, find time to block out time for yourself during the week. That's a little bit more intense than that. So two to three hours a week, because that lowers cortisol and that could be, you go out with a friend, you go out with your husband, you do something that nurtures you. But yeah. when we don't do that, then you lose the entire motivation for doing anything else. You know, right. why, you know, I find so many women get into this dark place of got to get the kids to school. I got to do this. Then I have to do that. Like they're on this like robotic list and the routine of the list and the day takes all the joy away out of life. So then why would you want to look good or why would you want to prep your food or why would you want to have more energy? You know, if you're not experiencing joy in some way or form. So I think it's, you know, before I can get into a list of, I need everyone to follow this diet and take these supplements and look at these hormones and, you know, sleep this many hours. I think before you even do that, if you don't have joy in some form or fashion, it could be joy from your, the work you do. It can be joy from your family. It could be, you know, joy from travel or from writing or photography or whatever it is. If you don't experience that innate feeling, you've lost your spark. And the right. minute you lose your spark, there's no motivation to follow my list. You're not, you're not interested, you know, because it's really like, why would I, why would I bother? It's, it's not worth it, you know? So I think that's probably my third, but most important rule. And what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Oh man. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Speaking of list. No. Wow. My 20 year old self. I wish I had just had more faith in myself. Yeah. You know, I wish I had been equipped. I was equipped with a lot of amazing gifts and a lot of amazing tools, but I wish, and I hope I give this to my daughter and it's not as easy as it sounds. You know, I wish I was equipped with that sense of self that was very firm and very rooted and didn't question or doubt 
myself because I spent a lot of time doing what everybody else wanted me to do and not doing kind of what I wanted to do. And what advice would you give to someone who's trying to take control of their health right now? I would say for anyone out there trying to take control of their health right now, I would probably tell them to start with why. Why are you trying to take control of your health? Are you doing it because your doctor asked you to do it? Are you doing it because someone told you to do it? Are you doing it because your your neighbor wants you to do it? I think you need to understand your motivation and understand clearly what you're trying to accomplish. So first understand the why, understand what it is that you're trying to accomplish, and then take charge of your health. Again, it's the motivation that carries you through a journey that can sometimes be really easy and sometimes be really miserable. So I think getting the motivation right and then finding what's on the other side of that and what it's going to bring you and really maybe even drawing a picture and putting that up. You know, you want to get healthy because you want to have a child or you want to get healthy because you want to look great at the gala that's coming up in three days, you know, or you want to get healthy, you know, because you want to have more energy for the people around you. I hear that all the time. It's just like, I'm, I'm not me. I don't have energy anymore for the people I love. Keep that motivation first and foremost, because then when the tough times come, then you'll always know to make the right choice. You'll always remember that it's choice A or choice B. I'm going to choose this because that's my motivation. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you.